Hello and welcome to episode number 173 of Turkey Book Talk. Many thanks for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we speak to Gönül Bozoğlu. She is Leverhulme Research Fellow at Newcastle University in the UK and the author of Museums, Emotion and Memory Culture, The Politics of the Past in Turkey, published by Routledge. The book examines how narratives of history are charged with political meaning in today's Turkey. William Faulkner once wrote that the past is not dead, it's not even the past. Mao Zedong spoke about making the past serve the present. And the equally ambitious former Yeni Shafak editor-in-chief, Ibrahim Karagul, more recently struck a similar tone when he hailed Turkey's foreign policy moves and said, quote, Time is going backward, the winds have reversed, and we're returned to history. Indeed, in Turkey, the past is often a battleground where contemporary rival identities clash for supremacy in what Gönül Bozoğlu calls memory wars. Her book specifically examines two major museums, the Panorama 1453 Museum in Istanbul and the Atatürk and War of Independence Museum in Ankara as case studies offering two very different versions of official history, seeking to both reflect and shape visitors' understanding of history in a way that is charged with present-day social, political, even geopolitical meaning. Before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a whopping 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Gunul Bozoğlu. The Atatürk and War of Independence Museum was opened at Atatürk's mausoleum in Ankara in 2002, giving visitors an all-encompassing narrative of Turkey's War of Independence and early Republican years from a resolutely Kemalist perspective. The Panorama 1453 Museum, meanwhile, was opened in Istanbul in 2009, painting visitors a spectacular celebratory portrait of the Ottoman conquest of Istanbul from the Byzantines in 1453. I started by asking Gunnar Bozolu what nudged her in the direction of these two specific museums for her study. Obviously, I came to this subject as a Turkish person who grew up in Turkey and had personal experience of the public meanings of history. 
I also worked in museums myself, and uh, I also studied museums in the UK and in new museology. It's quite normal to think about museums in relation to politics. That means both how they are embedded in political situations like the development of ideas about a nation state, but also how they are themselves political in the ways that they act and the roles they are sometimes expected to play. So when I developed this interest at the time, I noticed these panoramic spectacular museums were being developed, uh, especially by the AKP, led by uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. This 1453 that we're going to talk about was the first one at the time that got my attention. And I heard that they were going to develop more panoramic museums in relation to other, uh, you know, famous history, histories, I don't know, like Selçuk's battle against the Byzantine in 11th century and how they captured Bursa, you know, how the Ottomans captured Bursa. And they were also thinking about a new museum in relation to Gallipoli. So I was like, okay, what's going on? Why this sort of museums are coming? And then I knew that uh, because I had been to Ankara at the time, I knew that there was also already one panoramic uh, museum in Ankara in relation to Mustafa Kemal Atatürk and uh, secular stories. Anyway, we'll talk about the museums. So yeah, that was like my interest, like why <laughs> these sort of techniques were used. So you got these two museums and basically on opposite sides of the political spectrum. There's one that deals with a particular narrative of the conquest of Istanbul in 1453. And that one is in Istanbul. And the other museum is at the Ataturk Mausoleum in Ankara. And it gives a particular narrative of the War of Independence. So you've got two events almost 500 years apart. They attract a different crowd. They have very different atmospheres as well that I think we'll talk about. But they also have some similarities. I mean, both of them, to put it crudely, are very didactic. You know, they both have this very particular narrative about what it is to be Turkish, what Turkey's foundational past is, what its future is. So despite the fact that both of these museums are on opposite sides of the political spectrum, they are also resembling in, in some ways. Could you just talk about that weird tension that you describe in the book, how both of these museums, although, they, although they're both very different, they also do share key characteristics? Definitely. Actually, yeah, this is a really good point that you picked up. So the two museums actually use quite similar techniques in some ways. Both of them use large-scale panorama with life-size representations of battle, and both include hero figures, whether Atatürk or Mehmet II or Fatih the Conqueror, as it's said he is called in Turkish. But they offer two very different ideas about the nation that in turn relate to, relate to divergent identity positions in Turkey. A conservative Islamist one in Panorama, 1453, and a secular modernizing one in Wars of Independence. In some ways, you can see Panorama 1453 as a kind of response to the insistence on Atatürk in other museums and in public space, the school curriculum and uh, many other parts of everyday life. 
So it was set up with the support of the AKP, led by uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who were interested in 1453 as an alternative story and source of pride based on an Islamic Ottoman regime and its power. It also relates to the AKP desire for Turkey to be powerful global force, just as the Ottoman Empire once was. So that was the idea of AKPs. In fact, in, if you visit the museum, you will see there are some references to that as well. You can argue that history is uh, ne- never really past because it is a product of present. This is a general problem of today and uh, is something that we think a lot about in museum heritage and memory studies as uh, past is constructed and reconstructed. What we see in museums and heritage is uh, selective. The same is through for school curricula and films, all media and all of the ways in which history is taught in public. So um, institutions and even individuals choose what matters and why. So for me and uh, others in my field, we are interested in the political reasons they tell the stories they do and also the reasons that they don't tell other stories. For example, in the Panorama 1453 Museum, the focus is all about one day, the 29th of May, when the city fell to the Ottomans. This cuts down the complexity of a very long conflict. And we also see the action only from one perspective, the Ottomans' viewpoint. We don't see the perspectives of the people of Constantinople or what it was like for them. We can then ask, why not? For example, it might not suit the museum to present things from the other side, and it might take away from the idea of a glorious victory if visitors are given the opportunity to see things from the Byzantine side. In effect, quite literally, the museum is making uh, you take sites. We never ask about what the Byzantines were fighting for, their city, their culture, and their lives. So that's missing from the museum because it doesn't fit the idea of the glorious Ottoman conquest that is somehow righteous. And the two museums have very different atmospheres. So this perhaps represents this broader ideological difference between the two. The 1453 Museum, as you describe it in the book, is very loud, triumphant, boisterous and noisy. And it evokes that kind of behaviour in the people who come and visit it. And the the War of Independence Museum at the Anikabir Mausoleum is much more solemn, melancholy, orderly, and has this very reverent, very serious atmosphere. And it encourages in the visitor very different behavior, kind of sense of decorum. And you describe people having conversations very often in very hushed tones when they visit. So again, there's a big difference there. But at the same time, you say both museums, quote, evoke a sense of loss and regret that perceives a chasm between a kind of golden age Mm. for Turkish identity and society and the lack of unity and solidarity today. So it's a very complicated picture on both museums. Again, despite this big difference, the approach that they take is actually quite critical to the present day in a way, because it's presenting a glorious past generation, glorious sacrifices of a past generation in a particular national narrative or imperial narrative. 
and contrasting those with the present day, which is somehow chastised in relation to that history. So again, we can see their similarities and obvious big differences as well. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, if you sort of, yeah, think about fields and ideological aim of these museums, I mean, so both of them tell what can be considered as stories of the Turkish nation in some way. Uh, so one of the museums, like the War of Independence Museum in Ankara, is run by the military, as we know, which has traditionally had a role in Turkey as a secular power within the state. And the, this museum celebrates the w- wars of independence that led to Turkey's emergence as a modern nation state. And in particular, it celebrates Mustafa Kemal Atatürk as both a soldier and a statesman. So it's very much about his achievements in both of those roles and the secular modernizing values that he instilled in the Turkish state, part of which was about dismantling the Ottoman Empire and its ways. So, for example, introducing Western dress, the Latin alphabet and social developments, uh, such as promoting women's rights, and especially the bit about women's rights appeared in my interviews quite a lot. And in the Panorama 1453 Museum, what we see is a different story of Turkish identity, not about the modern nation state, but about a longer history connected to the conquest of Constantinople by the Ottomans in 1453. And the panorama is immersive and puts visitors in the position of being Ottoman soldiers. And it tells the story of the 29th of May 1453. You know, the siege took up to 53 days, uh, something like that. But they selected the moment of, you know, the specific moment of 29th of May 1453, when the city fell and includes lots of well-known episodes and presents the victory as a glorious one. So the Ottomans are presented as heroes. And it's an interesting perspective in some ways because we might well look at the invasion and taking of territory in very different ways uh, as aggression, expansionism or colonialism. So it might feel odd to find a museum that openly celebrates this. But the key is that the conquest is seen as divinely ordained and in the prophets had it about the fall of Constantinople, that the Ottomans rightfully took the city. So we already see sort of different kind of stories and positions set up. And in the book, I also talk, when I talk about the atmosphere, I also talk about it as like a contract between the visitors and the museum, because I visited the museum, both museums in different days when I did the field work. And without the visitors, actually didn't have the same atmosphere. Because as you said, visitors show different uh, reactions to both displays in both both museums. And they would make different kind of comments or gestures and uh, etc. And of course, we can also say that this was prompted by the museum. So there is this sort of contract is going on between in the museums that was quite visible in my fieldwork. So coming on to that fieldwork, much of the research that you conducted was conducted on site at the museums and you did over 100 interviews with visitors at both asking what they think and through this research you got really a first-hand appreciation of the emotions involved, the nostalgia, sense of triumph and glory 
and strength blended also with this keen sense of resentment and victimhood, particularly in the 1453 Museum, and the sense of loss, particularly in the War of Independence Museum centered around Ataturk. And the idea at both of these museums of constructing an imagined community of spiritual descendants. What unique angle of specific insights did this on-site research, these interviews, give you? So I used quite a few methods from observing visitors to short questionnaires to a method called accompanied visiting, which is where you visit with someone and encourage them to think aloud as they took at the displays. I also interviewed these people before and after we visit together to get a sense of what their lives are like, what they believe, what media they engage with, what their social uh, networks are like, and so on. And then what their reflections on this uh, visit are later on. So these are very in-depth and take a lot of time, typically at least a day each. And uh, what I found was that, firstly, both museums and the histories they present mean a lot of visitors. They appeal to particular social political communities. So I found that some secular people didn't want to visit pa- uh, Panorama 1453 and vice versa. Some conservative Islamists wouldn't even consider visiting Ataturk and War of Independence Museum. These are extreme positions. You know, we can't generalize it. So these are uh, the yeah extreme positions that I'm talking about. One of the things I tried to do was to take people from multiple political viewpoints to the museums, including people who subscribed totally to the narratives and politics represented there, but also people who fundamentally disagreed with them. It's just trying to, you know, understand different responses to these museums. That was my purpose how the historical stories in each museum related to specific political and social identities in Turkey that people literally grow up with. For example, in my own childhood, I grew up in a secular network for which Ataturk was always a key reference point. So people know the stories. They don't necessarily go to the museums to learn about history, but to engage with key figures and emblems and values that are important to their identities and engaging again and again with well-known narratives that are part of everyday life. For example, there are various various films and TV shows about the conquest and public representations like Morals All Around Istanbul. And the AKP puts on a massive light show on the anniversary every year. On the other hand, there are thousands of statues of Ataturk all over Turkey. And his image and ideas are still prevalent. And uh, people have his signature on uh, bumper stickers. So maybe you have seen it, you know, on cars and stuff. This book is a, a close analysis of the museums. But the key point is that it's relational study working across things like TV and film, historical anniversary celebrations, party politics, monuments, and the place of different pasts in people's lives, specifically the you know Ottoman and the Republican pasts as two competing national stories, because the stories in the museums were not just in these museums, so they were everywhere. 
History, or to be precise, some histories have unusual visibility in everyday life and social politics, and of course, party politics and the way in which the state it itself is made. Above all, history is not really past when it is used by people and it becomes a means of articulating what the country should be and in turn, what it should mean to be a national citizen. What we see in Turkey is that there are different views of the state and different ideas about what its future should be. In turn, these form different conceptions of citizenship. So different histories are used by different groups to present what they think is the right story for Turkey, the history that citizens should be proud of and inspired by. This is how history can play a part in maintaining divisions in society. So my my story of the nation might not be yours, and they can involve different values, such as the ideas that state should be secular and modernizing, or closely connected to Islamic faith and conservative moral positions. Now, particularly the 1453 Museum seems to fit in quite neatly with this broader project of the AKP government and a particular media project as well that's really got going in the last decade or so mm. of historical TV series having a particular ideological bent which is very much reflected in this museum. You can imagine somebody going to this museum during the day and then going home, putting on the TV and watching, I don't know, Dirili Shirtarul or something and you've basically been submerged within this particular ideological worldview for hours And that obviously has a big effect and it obviously resonates in a particular way with certain emotional chords within people, really. This sense of having a grand past and a glorious future, if we just understand that past in the quote unquote correct way. And I just wonder how, um, if I can sort of put forward a, a hypothesis here, that these initiatives, such as the museum, such as these TV programs, They represent a particular anxiety about perceived threats by the forces of, I don't know, globalization or westernization or cultural influences that are somehow from elsewhere. So this westernization or this encroachment has actually triggered a kind of re conservative reaction, basically. You describe one person in your interviews as uh, saying, you know, in his words and in his emotionally heightened speech and body language, I discerned a sense of embattlement, of opposition and resistance to others. So he's going to this museum and he's basically framing himself as being on one side of a particular cultural divide. And this museum as being part of a almost resistance to another side, a perceived other side, which you can perhaps associate with cultural products from abroad, from the West. So what do you make of that argument of people retreating to these particular historical narratives, particularly the 1453 Museum, in response to this perceived threat or even this idea of complications and uh, a difficult world that we experience in the present, you know, whether that's economic problems or cultural deracination or whatever. How does this museum and how do these TV series that we mentioned fit into that? Do, do you think that hypothesis is a realistic one? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, that actually makes me think about the emotional reactions from the visitors. So people were quite 
emotional about these tensions that you mentioned. And in fact, when I you know started this research, I didn't really set out working on emotions. In fact, it's something that I try to try to avoid. Maybe I don't know because I'm actually <laughs> from Turkey, and maybe emotional reactions are quite visible, and they were maybe around me too much. So I try to avoid it. But you know, in in this sort of research, if it comes from your field, you you cannot ignore it, and it was very very visible in my field work. And I think the the people appeal emotionally because uh, people are so invested in them at this level of identity and also because the different histories are connected to divided society today. And in my visitor studies, it was clear that some people, not all, used the history of 1453 to fight back against secular Turkey that they didn't like. And as you say, that's the case with the new series is like maybe with the Rilish, the one about Ertuğrul, the first um, sultan of Ottoman Empire. Now it's like um, there are, there's another one about Abdul Hamid. So there are many of those, but they have similar kind of approaches. And obviously these pe- people who visit Panorama Museum, they watch these series. In fact, it came up in my fieldwork. So in a way, this is a way of fighting back against these Western values that they didn't like. So they talked about the Ottomans as ancestors and claim that this history and identity had been stolen from them after the foundation of the Republic. This theme of loss also appeared in the museum in Ankara, and visitors were often sad that Atatürk's values and a secular way of life seemed to be in danger from conservative political Islam. So in some ways, this is not surprising. There is a growing interest in how visitors behave emotionally. And one of the important understandings that I came to quickly was that museums are places where people go to feel. In relation to these two museums, people went to the museums knowing that they were going to be emotional. So being emotional was something like a performance of identity that plays an important role in people's lives and identities and in turn sustains certain political ideologies and communities. And in both museums, actually people cried or some said, you know, they wanted to cry. And the reasons, the arguments were really related to all these issues that you described well. Now, both of these museums that we're talking about, they assert particular national myths, essentially. And in that sense, they are almost the opposite of the tendency in Western Europe or the US of using museums and other cultural institutions to question national myths, essentially. And as I was reading, I was wondering, you know, how hard it is to imagine such questioning of national myths, such exhibitions being held at major cultural institutions in today's Turkey, or even this idea of, you know, toppling statues. Mm -hmm. It seems to exist in almost a completely different world. It's very, very hard to imagine that happening in Turkey. You know, whenever an Ataturk statue, for example, is attacked, it's not woke activists who are doing that, but generally it's religious reactionaries who are about as far away from being woke as you can be. 
And these two museums, you know, also seem a world away from those self-questioning liberal investigations of history and the sense of ambivalence about the past that that project embodies. So I just wonder what are your reflections really on where Turkey stands in relation to these new tendencies or relatively new tendencies in the West? Again, to be provocative, you know, mm-hmm. would you say that this fact that Turkey represents a very different cultural world, essentially, is that evidence that Turkey is not part of this broader Western cultural conversation or is that far too simplistic? Mm. Of course, there are people, there are groups who uh, have the same tendency yeah. as, you know, Europe, you know, they are, and in fact, in my field work, as I said, I interviewed different groups and they were very much critical of these two museums. So, yes, there are people and groups who would make a change like in the way that is happening in the UK, for example. But what, what we are talking about is dominant stories. And that means, you know, dominant stories that take a lot of place in museums, in public, other public places, in media and so on. And I think Turkey is quite a long way from questioning national myths in, in the way we have seen in Europe and in the US. Although, obviously, the contradictory uses of the past in Turkey show that different groups are critical about different histories. So there is a sense that both of these histories have a kind of almost sacred value for people. And some people have, as you said, attacked the statutes of Atatürk in the past. Even recently that happened. But this is highly controversial. And even Erdogan, countries openly criticizing Atatürk. I mean, I know sometimes some people from AKP, you know, criticize and, you know, these tensions happen. But there is always counter reaction to that. In fact, more recently, even Erdogan uh, has used Atatürk's, you know, himself. And we see Atatürk's posters in their rallies. Although how and why he does or AKP uses this is complicated. So the AKP is in power, but still needs to appeal to voters, including many moderate Muslims, for whom Atatürk is an important figure. So it's complicated. Not all AKP supporters are anti-Atatürk, I don't think. In fact, that was the case in my field work as well. So I also think that if people attacked the public memory of the Ottomans, this might attract a harsh response from the state and from the, of course, you know, Ottomanist Islamist groups. One or two of my interviewees expressed shame about the Ottoman past in a way that uh, resembles some discourses in the current issues around the colonization of public space in the US and Europe. So, as I said, that idea exists in Turkey with some groups and with some people. However, I don't envisage the toppling of statutes soon. What we have instead is kind of uneasy coexistence Existence, coexistence of conflicting histories and groups. And that's what normally characterizes uh, Turkish society too. Sometimes there are radical changes between political systems, but there is always a need for groups to live side by side, even if they don't always interact, and to have their own symbols and historical narratives to support their identities. So I think the best we can get is like, let's uh, you know, give space to each other. But of course, the, you know, it's again complicated who gets 
space, how much space is, uh, you know, big question in Turkey. It's like these two dominant uh, histories, identities, memories, whatever you want to call, are so dominant that we don't actually, it's not easy to see what the other's uh, positions are. But we have to recognize that it's not just about these two positions. So there is more than that. Yeah. And I wonder about people in the middle. I mean, you talk in the book about some people who don't fit easily into either of these crude categories. What did you learn about those people and what they made of both of these museums? Yeah, I mean, I think there were, I mean, definitely I had extreme responses and groups, uh, as I talked about. And certainly, you know, I had groups who really accepted what the museum, these two museums uh, said. And I had really sort of harsh reactions to the museums as well. But for some people, you know, as I said, like not all people who vote for AKP dislike Atatürk. In fact, that was complicated. Even some extreme people, after some conversations, will say, well, you know, Mustafa Kemal, he was a good soldier. We recognize him as a good soldier, good Pasha. He was a great Ottoman Pasha. What we criticize is uh, how Kemalists use this, how created like a religion. So they sort of created their Atatürk. Well, they don't use the word Atatürk, let's say they call Mustafa Kemal, recognizing him as a soldier. And it was the same with the others. I mean, of course, uh, many interviewees uh, in Ankara, secularists, Kemalists, uh, they openly said they really don't like Ottomans and they they don't think, you know, they represent them, especially women. They said Ottomans don't represent them because they never cared about women and etc. But some uh, secular people would talk about actually Fatih. Fatih, you know, the, the conqueror of Istanbul. Yes. Fatih, the conqueror of Istanbul, yeah. The criticism is again, well, Fatih was more modernized and more open-minded sultan. Fatih is not the person that Panorama or, you know, AKP described. So in a way, he existed as a more uh, modernized, uh, more sort of westernized uh, sultan compared to how AKP or political Islamists would interpret. So I think people in the middle had their version of (laughs) these two different stories. I think that's important, especially in the current situation. We don't really think about these people, but we should because the space for people in the middle is kind of small. And I just hope that this space will (laughs) grow in the future. That was Gunul Bozolu. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 173. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. 
Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.